This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We do want to get an update on the virus, too. And someone who has seen other outbreaks and um, pandemics is our next guest. He is Tolbert Ninswa, and he's the Senior Research Associate at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, And he's former Deputy Minister of Health for the Republic of Liberia. He has seen a lot. Of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of this namesake network. And uh, Tolbert joining us on the phone from Smyrna, Delaware. Tolbert, so nice to have you here with us. Um, I have been so looking forward to talking with you. Tell us about your experience and what you've seen in the past with Ebola and other viruses and how it compares and to today's pandemic and what we can learn. Carol, thank you. Good afternoon. Hope you're keeping safe. Yes, you too. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, the thing is uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, one of the things that I think that is in our toolbox to deal with COVID-19 is the issue of contact tracing. Uh, It's been downplayed, but it's an important tool because contact tracing uh, was a very key part of the 2014-2016 Ebola outbreak, of which I was the incident manager. And what contact tracing does, it can help end COVID-19 because the objective is to identify exposed persons and prevent secondary infection. If people in the first generation of cases of infection cannot generate additional cases, then you can end the outbreak. Then we can all open up and be happy and move along. So, but the, the terrible thing is that one, one missed contact can keep this outbreak going and going. And so contact creation is an important tool. Is that one of the lessons? that we learned in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. It brought the outbreak under control. Very important. So, Tolbert, it's interesting to hear more and more about contact tracing. We also know from surveys and polls that some people are either skeptical about it or resistant to it, and in part based on who's going to be in charge of it, how is the best way to sort of create a system that people will not only believe in, but will effectively follow and participate in? So, thank you. There are contact tracing present ports. The, the first thing we must know is that contact tracing is not new. It's a public health poll public health interventions that have been used to manage major public health epidemics. Number one, you know the word eradicated smallpox. Tuberculosis today is being used, syphilis, HIV and AIDS, vaccine-preventable diseases. There are legal basis principles. And contact tracing got a legal authority from public health intervention, even in the U.S. Constitution and state laws clauses to protect the public welfare as well as common law and general press reports 
One thing that can encourage the population of the United States is public health needs to be protected. We require our children to take vaccines, to attend schools, to protect the communities, to protect health and safety. And if you have tuberculosis, for example, and you refuse to take your medication, you can be required to do so by the health department of this country so you cannot infect other people. The same way with COVID-19. So contact tracing, to make it simple, this is where together we saw the urgency to limit the spread of COVID-19. The John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, right. with the Bloomberg Philanthropy, we designed this course so that people can understand what it is. And it's free, it's online. Right. It's interesting. I've, I've seen that. And um, you're right. It's a course for people who want to just understand it and know how it works or possibly get involved in helping the process. I do want to ask you one question. How do you do successfully and the right way contact tracing as well as start to reopen the economy? Can they go hand in hand? The, my, my fear is that from, from an expert point of view, though COVID-19, the case fatality rate is low. The number though, right now we're talking about a number in the, in the 70,000 uh, Americans close to that, if not 80,000 right now, we're looking at the data shortly. But you don't want, there was a reason why we closed up. The reason we closed up and locked down people for social distancing and all of that, it was because of an infection. Imagine the outbreak started with a single case and few case, fewer cases coming to come online. Now, if you open up without getting to appreciable or zero cases and don't know all of the contact, it is inconceivable that we are giving the virus a blank check to engulf us and continue to inflict irreparable loss that poses existential threats to mankind. And reopening prematurely for me will cause more damage than good. So we have to make sure right. that it is done carefully. We look at the science and the data. We Got it. State which district, which community have an infection. And Tolbert, you, uh, as we mentioned earlier, were also integral in the response to Ebola in West Africa a few years ago. And I wonder, given that experience and in anticipation of maybe a second wave of COVID-19 here in this country in the fall, what have we learned both from your past experience and from what we know so far about COVID-19, about how we deal with this when it comes back. So thank you, Jackson. Uh, look, time, time is very, very essential for, for disease outbreaks. During the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, our slogan was, it is not over until it is over. So we were looking after every single case, testing, tracing their contact. Moving on, we need to be aggressive, take aggressive action for testing suspected and provable cases and robust contact tracing to conquer, to conquer uh, sorry, COVID-19. Ramping up testing, tracing 100% of the contact, isolating the sick, it will help significantly to stop COVID-19. And this is where some of the things that we need to do is people need to go the course that is being supported by the university, by the Bloomberg School of Public Health, the contact tracing course. Uh, this is just six hours to complete it. 
and it's about the basic information of the virus, uh, fundamentals of contact tracing, such as how to define a case, identify their contacts, uh, calculate the number of times the contact was in isolation. Right. These are things to do. And as we anticipate for another wave of the outbreak, even we haven't got out of the hoose yet, so it's even difficult to talk about another wave. We have to beat this thing down. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think, you know, part of the process, right, is educating everyone. There's so much information floating around. And your point is we all have to understand how contact tracing works so that we can essentially buy into it um, because rightfully so, that's a way of really getting hold of this virus. Having said that, I do wonder then, as you see in the United States, states reopening the process of coming back, uh, it's not equal across the country. Do you think the process that's being done right now of reopening and people doing different things in different places, does it make sense or is it dangerous? It's, it's a huge risk. It's a huge risk. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously concerned after dealing with infectious disease like Ebola, though the magnitude and the, the, the fatality is not the same, the case fatality rate for Ebola, which is about 50% of the people that will get the disease with COVID-19, that is less than 2%. But in that, COVID-19 is still infecting and killing a lot of Americans. And so I will be very, very cautious and sign, sound this warning that it is very much premature to open up this country when you're having huge infection. States without America is one country. This is one country so whether a state is at zero cases and another state is having a disease, we should be prepared to live with the disease. Unless someone is telling me that we are now give up, that this is an endemic disease that we're going to live with to kill people. But once there is no new cure, new vaccines to open this country while you're putting the population of the United States at very, very serious risk. Right. Mm. This is what... This is what we are, are informing the public. It, it's important. Part of the course is skills for effective communication in tracing processes, such as what it means to be an active listener and how to deal with the common challenges that arise with investigating cases. So contact tracing is very important. Testing is important. Let us get to zero. Then we know that we're making a progress. Right. Mm. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Tolbert Nyenswa is Senior Research Associate in the Department of International Health at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Also, importantly, the former Deputy Minister of Health for the Republic of Liberia leading the Ebola outbreak. And I have to say, Carol, it strikes me in having this conversation that if you say to people here in America, this is like Ebola, we have lessons to learn from Ebola, maybe that will sort of grab people a little bit more and understand how critical these things are right now. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, and I believe a coughing Joel Weber. Hopefully he will uh, catch his breath there and join us in a second. He is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on a remote line from Brooklyn. Also, Sarah Fryer, tech reporter for Bloomberg, and notably the author of the fantastic new book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, the number one new release on Amazon. Uh, I noted yesterday, Sarah joins us on the phone from San Francisco. She's back hard at work pumping out great stories for the magazine. So 
I have to start with you, Joel. Oh, it wasn't you coughing. There you go. Thank you. I think it was one of our. It was not. I think it was one of our. It was one of our producers. Sorry, Joel. I didn't mean to call you out. Yeah. No, totally. It's okay, okay, Joel. We'll still like you if you're coughing on air. It's okay. So this story started actually with um, some amazing little tweets that uh, I saw Sarah doing. And it was sort of just her asking people in Silicon Valley of like, hey, as as companies announce that you don't need to come into the office between now and the end of the year, what are your plans? And the moment I saw her tweet those questions, I was like, whatever these answers are, I want to know about them. And, And Sarah, what did you find out? Well, it was, I just got this influx of replies from people who said, I, you know what, if I can take my tech salary with me and I don't have to go into the office, I want more space. I don't want to be paying 3000 to $4,000 in rent for an apartment that isn't even close to my office, that isn't even um, giving me the space I need to feel comfortable. Um, people with young children were feeling like they could really use a, a backyard right about now. And with that salary that you make in the tech industry, you could live, you could buy a house pretty much anywhere except the Bay Area. The Bay Area has had this incredible affordability crisis over the last few years. And even these tech workers really can't, can't buy there if they're early in their careers yet. And that makes them a whole lot more mobile. I got to say, Sarah, I keep thinking about all these grand tech campuses, right? Apple just built a whole new headquarters. And I do wonder if, you know, as you say in your story, these companies are known for being very office-centric, and yet maybe this will be a big change for them. I don't know. What are you hearing from the companies? It's funny because they're building these tools for us to connect with each other remotely, right? But they are. They are so office-centric. I mean, you've seen it parodied in... In HBO Silicon Valley, you've seen uh, you've seen people just care so much about the the, the perk wars. You know, are they going to give me laundry? Are they going to give me yoga? Are they going to give me uh, these off-site retreats that we've heard about in the tech industry? It, it really has been a tool for recruiting. But guess what? When people go back to the office, they're not going to have those shared shuttle buses. They're not going to have the cafeterias where anyone can serve themselves their own food. They're not going to have these wide open wide open places to gather indoors because companies are already talking about changing things up for coronavirus. And maybe we'll go back to cubicles. Maybe we'll go back to glass dividers. And and I just think that the experience, everyone's saying not only is the experience is going, going to be so much different, but companies are realizing that all of those investments that they made in their office and that culture, mm. it's, their employees are still being productive from home, and they wouldn't make announcements like this if they if they weren't going to see a similar level of productivity from their staff. So I think we're going to see a very dramatic change in the investment in, in the office culture. Okay, so Sarah, if if uh, if I'm a tech worker and I can live anywhere and do my job remotely, that sounds pretty great, um, especially if I can keep my salary right. But a company might look at that and say, you know, you know what, now that you're remote, um, maybe you don't deserve as much as before when, when the expectation was that you were on, on campus. And maybe there's even somebody that we might be able to pay less. Um, how, is, how do you foresee that playing out? In two directions, because employees, once they move, maybe not for this job, maybe they'll get to keep their, their salary for a couple of years while coronavirus is still an issue. 
But for the next job, for the next gig they're trying to find after that, the the head of people at Twilio, one of the tech companies I talked to for this, said it's probably bad business practice for us to pay those people the same thing that, that we would pay them in the Bay Area. And by the way, because these workers are working from anywhere, maybe we can recruit from anywhere, too. Maybe our next engineer doesn't have to come right. from San Francisco so with true. those San Francisco salaries. Maybe they can come from Nashville. Right. Right. Their labor pool, right? If you think about it, their potential workers, they can go anywhere they want, potentially. So, Sarah, you know, you wrote about so eloquently in your book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, buy it wherever you get your books. Um, You wrote about so well about the culture of Facebook and the culture of Instagram. So many of these cultures, one could argue, do rely on the culture of Silicon Valley, and as you say, it's been parodied in Silicon Valley. It's been celebrated in movies like The Internship. My uh, son and I watched that uh, just the other night, and it's a very attractive but also very collaborative way. It does encourage a certain vibe. How much do these companies worry about losing the things that made them so special? They certainly worry about it, and that's one thing that really came through in my reporting for the book is that employees really cared whether the Instagram office looked different than the Facebook office, whether they were able to build their own vibe, their own brand, um, be as design-centric in, in their own way as they wanted to be. And I think that after this, we are still going to see an emphasis on, on office culture, but it's going to take a long time to get back to normal, and it won't go back to how it was. There will have to be a completely new normal. And I think that you're going to see a culture evolve, just like we're seeing the way we communicate evolve. We are not able to, you know, I, I, I went to a Zoom wedding over the mm-hmm. weekend. I've been to a Zoom baby shower. Like, things are going so to be true. different for a long time. Um, okay, so I, I want to also have one more follow-up here, Sarah. And I know you didn't go into this in that story, but I'm really curious. If we see this influx or exodus, I guess, tech exodus, um, from California to other places in the country, could we potentially see there being sort of like a small business boom as company as, as people leave big tech companies? Could there be sort of a small tech movement that comes out of the pandemic? And so I got about 40 seconds here. You are certainly going to see the potential for the next great startup to come from anywhere. And you're also going to see some gentrification in these towns that are getting this influx of workers with high salaries, but maybe it'll boost their economies on the flip side. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see. All right. Sarah Fryer, Fryer, excuse me, Sarah Fryer, great story. Tech reporter for Bloomberg, also the author of No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. It's a great quarantine Top read. at Amazon. Great reviews. Yeah. It's all over the place. So it's cool. All, it's so good. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week and a personal experience set our next guest on the path to creating a global management and services medical company in a way disrupting how we approach healthcare. She believes the pandemic may do the same. Sigal Otzman is founder and CEO of Medex Global and joining us uh, on this Thursday on the phone from Tel Aviv, Israel. Um, Sigal, so nice to have you here with us. Um, first of all, I hope you're doing okay, your family, your team doing okay? Yes, I am. We're keeping safe, putting all the efforts in it. And thank you so much, Carol, for having me today. And what's it like? Give us, you know, one of the things as we've talked to people around the world, you know, is telling us how the virus is impacting them and what you're seeing uh, on the ground there in Tel Aviv. Tell us just what's going on right now. 
So it's been a crazy journey, actually. I traveled really till um, quite lately, and it's been interesting to see different responses by different cultures and different people. I came back from Singapore, then traveled to uh, Dubai, from there to Israel. So in Singapore, people were quite laid back. No one almost wear masks uh, up to eight, seven weeks ago. And then in Dubai, um, stress levels were going up slowly. And then I came back to Tel Aviv, where I was put in quarantine, actually, for 14 days, mm. because I just came in, which was quite an experience. Um, I was quarantined, um, and I had my office set up in an apartment, which was um, an interesting experience. I think everyone now around the world is really feeling the same. Um, everyone is looking at how to keep safe, how the economy is going to recover, when are the vaccines going to come, and how are we actually going to consume and be provided healthcare services in the future. So I think a lot of questions, um, a lot of stress, and trying to be disciplined in keeping safe. And so, Sigal, it's such an interesting point because I, I feel like we are learning a lot about ourselves, to your point, and sort of what we need and what, what we don't need when it comes to certain services, and maybe more importantly, how we expect those services to be delivered. One of the questions that we're constantly asking to folks, especially in your business and the, the broadly defined healthcare and technology business is, what is temporary and, and what is lasting? Do you have a sense of that? And, and what's your prediction? I think what we've seen in the last 20 years is gone. We're going to a really um, significant re-evolution. I don't call it a revolution, but a re-evolution of the healthcare uh, systems. Going to a doctor, to a GP clinic is history. Most people are want to have immediate accessibility and implementation of speaking to a doctor online, having access to data analytics of how were people with my same symptoms diagnosed and how were they treated and how did that work out for them. Um, so I think that going to see doctors is going, the numbers are going to go down. People are want to look at accessibility and it's going to be immediate. Digital health, artificial intelligence is the future. What we've seen um, until today is never going to come back. Really? I, I really believe that telehealth, mm. using digital tools and artificial intelligence, are really going to change the landscape. Um, if, you know, it, when I meet a lot of CEOs and, and we discuss how is this going to reinvent um, healthcare systems, we all think that, you know, in the future, instead of going to see a doctor who's going to give his personal opinion before discussing with a doctor, you would probably push a button and get, okay, with my symptoms and my genetic makeup and my medical background, 9 million and whatever hundreds of thousands of people with the same symptoms and the same conditions have been diagnosed with this and this and have been treated with that sort of solution. So Before you see a doctor, you would go with data. You would be more right. educated and you will be able to make more evidence-based and more objective decisions before even getting out of your house and you will be able to do that from the comfort and the safety of your own home. It almost sounds like some screening before you like, I mean, because what's the next step? I mean, if I have a doctor who needs to, I have a lot of ENT things, you know, and I, I'm often scoped in my throat. So, you know, what, 
I mean, where does that fit in? I can't scope myself. So I'm just wondering then what's the next step? I mean, what's the procedures? So first of all, the decision of how often do you really need to be scoped is a big decision, Mm. right? So more data about how necessary is my treatment. Um, What's the outcome of an additional potential uh, test or scope or any other test or treatment, right? Is it really useful? But that's a very specific, you know, going to have a scope is a very specific outcome of, a, of some different consultations you've had. Um, I think really that accessibility now and immediately um, is going to be on everyone's request. I also feel that a lot of other things are going to change, so we will see more investments in healthcare. Um, yeah. We will have to see more spending on healthcare as percentage of GDP in a lot of different countries. If you look specifically at the OECD average, we're between 8.8 and 10%. The U.S. is close to 17%, which is a significant concern. Right. Yeah. But with this pandemic, we're going to need more inpatient beds. We're going to need home care. We're going to have to invest in those frontliners, those doctors, those nurses. Right. You know, that didn't get the attention well, so they deserve more. for so many years. Well, you yeah. know, it's funny because, Seagal, we've been talking about disruption for healthcare, and it's really dragged uh, in many ways. And I think the way this pandemic is playing out uh, is causing people to rethink a lot of those systems and figure out how to make it a more productive and more accessible system. Um, Seagal, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, the CEO of Medics Global. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. And while it's been a tougher year and month for the YCG Enhanced Fund, it has, let's be fair, for a lot of funds. The fund is, though, uh, still beating just about all of its peers longer term over the past five years. It is in the 97th percentile with gains of more than 8% on average annually. Great to have back with us the manager of the fund, Brian Yuckman. He's chief investment officer at portfolio and portfolio manager of the fund uh, based in Austin, Texas, which is where we find him. Um, Brian, good to have you back with us. I'm glad to be back. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you guys doing being in New York? <laughs> Uh, we're doing okay. I mean, so, I, I, yeah. it's it's strange, though. I mean, you know, we're coming to the end of week nine uh, of, you know, broadcasting remotely. Carol's at her home. I'm at mine. We've got, you know, producers spread all over creation, some yeah. back in the office. And, you know, this is the sort of way of life. I do wonder, I mean, you're in a state that is uh, at least tentatively kind of coming back to life a bit. What is it like in Austin? Well, you say that, but I think, you know, traffic patterns, I think, are essentially the same, whether you're in a lockdown place or if you're open in Sweden. I mean, I'm still working from home. I have six children, and they're all doing school from home. Uh, so, and we're still ordering everything in. Yeah. So, you know, 
I don't think that behavior actually necessarily changes just because the regulation changes. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's certainly yeah. something that, that I feel like we've seen. I have a lot of family down in Atlanta, and, and they're saying the same thing. I mean, I was joking with my cousin uh, this morning, whose birthday it was yesterday, and she joked to me over text that, uh, yeah, she wasn't going to go out to go bowling and get a tattoo, which, of course, is, you know, sort of the joke <laughs> about uh, Atlanta, that they, those were the first things to open were the bowling alleys and the uh, tattoo parlors. In any case, um, <laughs> as an investor... Not exactly essential services. Exactly. As an investor, yeah. how do you look at this, though, Brian? Because, you know, you've looked at this market for some time. You see opportunities, I would imagine. Help us understand it. Well, I, I think what keeps coming back to my mind is it's just a time of unprecedented uncertainty. And so then I think you really need an unprecedented amount of humility because nobody really knows how things are going to shake out. I think people are acting like, oh, for sure the, the market's going to retest the prior lows. Uh, on the other hand, our country's doing more stimulus than anybody else as a percentage of GDP. I, I think it's, it's, well, as I would put it, you're either, I think, being ignorant <laughs> or just a lot of hubris to be able to believe that you can accurately predict these market fluctuations. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think like, if at the beginning of the year I said United Airlines is forecasting this month's May revenue to equal a single day of revenue from May last year, you'd think I was crazy. Yeah. And particularly was one of the most stable growing statistics. Um, and then just, you know, all this uncertainty, negative oil and stock prices now celebrating when the economy is in absolute dumpsters. I mean, the disconnect makes it tempting the time, but I think the problem is not only do you need to accurate, accurately predict future events, you need to be able to predict how much of that's already baked in. So you're essentially anticipating what the average opinion expects the average opinion to be. And I just I think it's too difficult to do. Well, that's interesting. So you still have to, though, make investments, right? You guys have to stay invested. So what do you do in an environment like this? So I think the best way to always position, particularly in an environment like this, is you want to be, as we put it, in global champions – but what I'm thinking of is here, dominant franchises, that they tend to be uh, networked globally in some way, and those network effects make them such dominant franchises that give them enduring pricing power. And I think over the long run, COVID is, is certainly not something that will – I think this will become a thing of the past, of course. And we'll, I, I have confidence in, in humanity to make it through and to innovate and to find ways to deal with it. How that actually happens, I don't know. And, of course, things can't really come back to a semblance of normalcy until fear of that volatility subsides. But as long as you're in a business that's conservatively capitalized so that it can avoid blow-up risk and avoid any form of dilution risk, then if you're in a, in, a, in a dominant global champion that has enduring pricing power, then I think the reality is where else are you going to hide? Right. You know, so give us – go to bonds? I mean, yeah. Right. So, right. so like give us some examples of that, Brian. Who, who are some champions you like here? Well, you know, as I was saying, there needs to be a huge amount of humility. You know, normally I would tell you guys some of the best investment opportunities are right where the fire is. You know, Mm -hmm. when people are saying, oh, this is dead money in the short run, but in the long run I see this will work out great. And I still think that that, there is some truth to that. Uh, But at the same time, that doesn't mean pile into those bets. So, you know, if you look at our at the YCG Enhanced Fund portfolio, the whole thing is chock full of these global champions. Yeah. Some of them are performing well in the crisis, like MSCI, which does subscriptions uh, to, you know, it, it's the largest international index provider. 
um, Microsoft, Moody's, Verisk, they do insurance data. We have some consumer staples. So these are balanced, are, are doing well, but we're wanting to rebalance them to trim them into some of these underperformers that still have that great future. And some of these that I'm thinking of that are, you know, again, globally networked businesses are like MasterCard, Copart, which is a, the largest auto salvage auction mm-hmm. uh, platform in the world, and then Booking, uh, which, you know, is definitely in the heat of the fire. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to have a, a large diversified portfolio that can be robust in various outcomes. Yeah, we've talked with Glenn Fogel over at Booking Holdings. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they're they're figuring they're it out. They're in the but red hot center of the fire. The, yeah. I, I mean, in many ways, right? Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, I have and, to say, I have to say, what? Go ahead, Brian. I was just going to say. I mean, you have global air traffic down ninety percent, right? And uh, and just then, you, of course, hotel bookings massively down. Their their strength is the, this massive network effect, particularly in Europe, where there's all these boutique hotels. Right. They depend on booking to to, um, to to book hotels, and right now, of course, nobody's booking. But they are. I mean, they are. <laughs> Yeah. Well positioned. Net cash position. They could survive with no revenue for probably a couple of years. Um yeah. and and that's that's zero revenue, right? And they can pull back on advertising well, to survive. I, I have to say we always appreciate talking with you. Um and it's really you sound humbled by this marketplace and I think it's a really we've been calling this reality check week and um, you can certainly hear that in your um, explanation about kind of what's going on and trying to figure this out. Brian Yuckman great guest, Chief Investment Officer at YCG Investments on the phone from Austin, Texas. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.